brilliant. Okay. So the readings from Revelation 17, verse 1 to 18. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who had borne testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was, and now is not, is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is lord of lords and king of kings. And with him he will be called chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitutes sit are peoples, multitudes, nations and languages. The beasts and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule. Until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw in a great city that rules over the kings of the earth. We all recognise the Statue of Liberty. It is an iconic American image. A universal symbol of freedom and democracy. Raising aloft a beacon of hope in her right hand, while in her left hand she holds a tablet inscribed with the words, Give me 
your tired poor. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. People coming to live a new life in America would be greeted by the Statue of Liberty, a sign of welcome, a sign of promise, a sign of hope. A recent political cartoon from the United States pictures a miserable Statue of Liberty, slumped at a desk opposite a figure. She's still clutching her famous words, give me your tired poor. We can't see who the figure opposite her is, but it's clearly intended to represent Donald Trump, waving his hand at her and telling her, you're fired. It's a cartoon designed to make a point about how, in the eyes of the cartoonist at least, Donald Trump is dismissing those values which have traditionally been central to American identity. We'll find out in the next day or so how many voters in America agree with him. The symbol of ancient Rome was the goddess Roma. She's here pictured on the right on a Roman coin dated to 71 AD during the reign of the Emperor Vespasian. She personified Roman power for the Greek world. There she is, dressed for battle, holding a short sword in her left hand, reclining on the seven hills of the city of Rome with one foot stretched out into the river Tiber in front of her. Her appearance is that of a noble woman, reclining at rest. An exemplar of strength and sobriety, worthy of admiration and worship. People were proud to be associated with Rome. Throughout the eastern part of the empire, it was not unusual for client kingdoms of the Roman Empire to build temples for the goddess Roma as a sign of their allegiance to Rome. An allegiance that was expressed by the rulers of these nations paying considerable sums of money into Roman coffers in exchange for the prestige and the privilege and power that came to them through their loyalty to the emperor, the bringer and the enforcer of world peace. Like a first century political cartoonist, John satirises this image of the goddess Roma and uh, turns her into a sleazy prostitute. People reading his description of this woman in Revelation 17 would have made the connections between the woman that he portrays there and the woman they would have seen on their coins if they used the coinage of the Roman Empire. This woman is identified as Babylon the Great, the mother of all prostitutes and of all the abominations of the earth. It's clearly a cipher for Rome, since when John was writing, Rome had followed in the footsteps of Babylon by conquering Jerusalem and destroying the temple. The woman represents the ungodly power of the Roman Empire. Babylon has been replaced by Rome as the enemy of God. And behind the facade of upright purity and nobility, John peels it back to expose the vice and the decadence for which Rome was notorious. And all the wealth that comes in uh, to Rome from the countries around the world, they are the wages paid to the prostitute by her clients. That's the picture that John paints for his readers in Revelation 17. 
The imagery is constantly shifting. One moment she is seated on a beast with seven heads and ten horns. The next, the seven heads are said to represent the seven hills on which she sits. A clear allusion to Rome again, which was famous for having been built on seven hills. In her hand, the prostitute holds a cup, which instead of being filled with the finest wine, is actually filled with abominable fluids from her adulterous liaisons. But a moment later, it's clear that she's drunk because she's been drinking the blood of the saints. And all the kings of the earth are intoxicated by drinking the wine of her adulteries. They stand in awe of Rome. We've just sung, I stand in awe of you, speaking of God. They were in awe of Rome because they've been so carried away with their relationship with this empire. They were intoxicated with their relationship with her. But John says she is just a whore. You think you've got a good deal. You think you've got a good relationship with the goddess Roma, but in actual fact, this woman who has taken over your minds and your hearts is nothing but a prostitute who's played the old trick of plying you with so much wine you've lost your senses, willingly parting with vast sums of money in exchange for the promised pleasures that she offers. There is nothing noble or virtuous about this alliance. Nothing to be proud of, nothing to hold your heads high about. Those who consort with Rome get drawn into her her obsession with decadence, vice and luxury. To be sure, the Roman Empire was the most powerful empire in the world. There was no denying that. This woman is, after all, the great city who rules over the kings of the earth. It says at the end of Revelation 17. A title that deliberately parodies Jesus' status as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Even higher than Rome is the authority of Jesus. But Rome's power, Rome's dominance of the world order, is based on corruption. And John uses the image of the prostitute to express the levels of degradation to which Rome had sunk and to which he was dragging down all those who allied themselves with her. In John's vivid imagery, the prostitute is seated on a scarlet beast, covered with blasphemous names, with seven heads and ten horns. And the seven heads of the beast don't only represent seven hills, but in another dream-like shift in imagery, they are also seven kings. Five of whom have fallen. One is now. One is to come, but only for a short while. And then, confusingly, the beast itself becomes an eighth king. A king who belongs to the seven and is himself headed for destruction. It will not surprise you to learn that over the years there has been no end of interpretations of what John meant by this imagery. To my mind, the most likely interpretation of the symbolism is that each of the seven kings represents a Roman emperor. The first is most likely Augustus who formally abolished the Republic in 27 BC and was the first to be publicly acclaimed as Imperator, as Emperor. He was succeeded by Tiberius, who was the one on the throne when Jesus was alive. After Tiberius came Gaius Caligula, who was mad, then Claudius, who was widely regarded as being a bit ineffectual, and then Nero, who started off well but then seems to have gone mad himself. And that takes us up to 68 AD, when Nero committed suicide by cutting his own throat after he had been deposed by the Senate 
and castigated as a public enemy. Thus ends the reign of King number five. The following year, AD 69, was chaotic for the Roman Empire. Nero was succeeded by Galba, who had bribed the Praetorian Guard to desert Nero and switch their allegiance to him. But he didn't pay them the money he promised them. He also promised someone called Otho that he would be his successor. But he failed to name Otho as his successor. So by and large, he'd alienated all those who promised to support him. And Otho had took matters into his own hands by winning over the allegiance of the Praetorian Guard and putting Galba to death. Otho became emperor on the 15th of January. What he didn't know was that on the 2nd of January, the legions in Rome had already appointed their own candidate to be emperor, Vitellius. Vitellius marched down to Rome. He defeated Otho in battle and Otho committed suicide on April the 15th. So Vitellius succeeded him on April, but on July the 1st in the east, Vespasian was proclaimed as emperor of Rome. And he marched on Rome, and when he got there, Vitellius was brutally murdered. Which of these gets to be king number six? The answer is, it's almost certainly Vitellius. Oh, sorry, Vespasian. Get it right, Carter. Get Vespasian. He's the last of the four, but he was the only one who was recognised as emperor in the East, which is the place where John was writing. In the the absence of the internet, it's possible that John had never ever heard anything of Galba, Otho and Vitellius, beyond perhaps the occasional rumour. So Vespasian is probably king number seven on John's list. And it was during his reign from 69 to 79 AD that the coin on the screen was minted. What reinforces the likelihood that Vespasian was king number six is the fact that John says that king number seven will only last a short time. And that was certainly true of Vespasian's successor, Titus, who ruled only two years from 79 to 81 AD. That in turn makes king number eight Domitian, who ruled from 81 to 96 AD. Why should king number eight be identified as one of the seven in Revelation 17, verse 11. And the answer to that conundrum lies in the way in which Domitian was sometimes perceived and portrayed as Nero come back again. Juvenal refers to him as that bold-headed Nero. And this association developed because they were both notorious for being cruel and tyrannical rulers. But there was a common perception that Um, Domitian was Nero back again. Because when he committed suicide, not many people attended Nero's funeral. And some people believed rumours that he'd not committed suicide at all, actually. He'd fled to the east, and that one day he would come back at the head of a mighty Parthian army to wreak vengeance on Rome. There was a real fear that Nero was going to come back and bring trouble with him. That's why at the end of John 17... John talks about the beast, which, with seven heads, turning on the woman in vengeful hatred, eating her flesh and burning her with fire. The kings turning on Rome and destroying her. There was a fear that Nero would do precisely that. Some people accepted that Nero had died, but thought he would come back from the dead. And John refers to this myth when he says that the beast once was 
now is not, and will come up out of the abyss to go to his own destruction. Again, there's a parody there. Jesus is the one who, who was dead and is alive and is to come again. And God is the one who was and who is and who is to come. Evil powers imitating the truth about God. The language about God being taken over and applied to this dictator who once, once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss to go to his own destruction. Talks about the, one of the heads of the beast having received what looked like a fatal wound, but still being alive. All this is about Nero coming back from the dead, possibly being reincarnated in the Eighth Kingdom mission. That is the context that makes sense of that bizarre language about the beast with seven heads and the eighth one being one of the seven and coming back again. We know that Nero persecuted the church. Notoriously in Rome, when the city was devastated by a fire, many people suspected that Nero was responsible for starting it himself. He wriggled out of the blame by pinning it on the Christians. He made them the scapegoats for starting the fire that devastated the city. And he unleashed terrible suffering on them. Reports are that Christians were dressed up in the skins of wild beasts to be torn apart by dogs. Many of them were crucified and set on fire as human torches to provide illumination in his gardens. Even those who despised Christians were appalled at the way in which Nero treated them. It's likely they're not certain that persecution was renewed under the mission. It's sometimes said that he was the first emperor to insist on being addressed as a lord and god while he was still alive. We can't be sure since all the information we have about him comes from his detractors who were determined to portray him in the worst possible light. Yet the first three years of his rule have been described as a reign of terror. And at the end of his reign, Clement of Rome reflects how a number of Christians had abandoned their faith on account of the sudden and repeated calamities and misfortunes which have befallen us. In Ephesus, a colossal statue was erected in his honour and people were expected to profess their loyalty to him by offering sacrifices outside their homes as processions went by. In this kind of context, you can see how and why Christians stood out like sore thumbs if they refused to offer a sacrifice to the emperor, if they refused to say that the emperor was Lord and God, if they said we only acknowledge the authority of Jesus. Being a Christian, if you stood by your faith, was a costly and dangerous thing to do. And Revelation was probably written for Christians facing persecution during the time of Domitian at the end of the first century, preparing them for what was to come, encouraging them to stand firm, parodying and seeking to ridicule and undermine the authority of the empire that was the cause of all their troubles. It's possible either that John wrote Revelation during the reign of Domitian, and in Revelation 17 he wrote as if he was still in the time of Vespasian, the fifth king, or maybe he actually wrote Revelation 17 during the reign of Vespasian and had a degree of prophetic insight into what was coming and wanted to prepare Christians to face this. Or maybe it's not long between 79 AD and 81 AD, maybe it was composed over a period of time and it straddled these kings. We just don't know. But what is clear is that this language in Revelation 17 is a highly charged 
political satire attacking the Roman Empire. All it stood for, all it represented, its authority and exposing the corruption and decadence that lay at its core. Revelation 17 and Revelation as a whole is not about escaping the world, nor is it about writing the world off. It is about engaging with and critiquing and standing up against a powerful and corrupt political regime, exposing its shortcomings, showing what it really stands for, heralding its demise, encouraging the faithful to keep on being faithful to the end. Revelation is not a book with an otherworldly focus, which invites us to be so heavenly minded that we end up being of no earthly use. It portrays Jesus as Lord of all, here and now, and does not shy away from the radical political consequences of making that claim. Lord Soper once said that he could, he could not see any future for a church that in God's world does not accept that it must be involved in that part of it which is political and economic. A church which claims that the world is for Christ must be up to its neck in politics, he said. If a society starts to turn bad, the easy option is always to go with the flow or to hide away behind closed doors, to put your heads down and pretend that nothing is happening. But that option is not open to us as the followers of Jesus Christ. As followers of Jesus, we put him first. And that means we, we cannot owe blind allegiance to this or that political party or patriotic symbol or cultural ideology. Our allegiance is to Jesus, to follow in his footsteps. And if he'd stayed out of politics, they never would have bothered crucifying him. But because he is the only King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the corollary of acknowledging him as the Sovereign of Heaven is that every other ruler and authority is ephemeral in comparison to him. This side of heaven, there will never be a perfect government. That's why our leaders need us to be praying for them. And boy, do they need our prayers at the moment. We are never people to shrug our shoulders and accept the status quo. So there's nothing we can do about it. Because every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And that's a challenge to every other kingdom and authority. That is a mandate for radical change. Our calling is to pray that prayer and work out what it means to live for Jesus. Live for Jesus as Lord in what is an increasingly godless society. It might feel as if we're living in Babylon. But in Babylon, we live as people who say, Jesus is Lord. Let's pray.
Lord, enable us to live as people who have our eyes wide open to the reality of your presence in this world, your sovereignty and your kingship. And enable us to live as people whose eyes are wide open to everything that is wrong with the world as well. And where those values clash between what the world embraces and what your kingdom requires, enable us to work to set right what is wrong. To keep in step with your spirit, even if that means being out of step with the rest of society. Lord, we live in an age where constantly what we read and see in the media is shaped and fashioned to manipulate the truth. Give us discernment to see things as they really are. To believe the truth, not what we would want to believe. Enable us then, help us, in our weakness and our vulnerability and our sense of helplessness to live and to pray and to work and to witness to the truth that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As we declare that here, help us to live it out in practice in our daily lives. For we ask it in your name, Jesus, and for your glory. Amen.